Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. And welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today I'm joined by a special guest, Mark Vincent. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? <laughs> so yeah, I'm a, a lecturer from the University of Sanglia in Norwich, and um, I do stuff on Russian crime, so um, I'm going to be talking about a uh, serial killer today. My stuff's more broadly on um, things like criminal tattoos and uh, all kinds of like horrible stuff that goes on in, in Russia. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, yeah, do you want to just quickly say a little bit about what you're going to talk about today? Just like a quick overview. Yeah, cool. Um, so I'm just going to be going over the case of a serial killer from going the early 1920s. So without giving too much away, I mean, the main kind of points from it, I guess, there's, is, there's this dude and he's in his early, early 50s. No one can really work it out because they don't know his date of birth. But early 50s, between 1921 and 1923, kills around about 33 people, although figures don't quite match up there as well. Um, it does follow the same MO um, in, in all the murders, which is you know, kind of like, really interesting. Um, he gets the death penalty, which um, isn't even a thing at that time. They have to kind of bring it back for this case. And also that his name isn't Komarov, which is how this um, account has been discussed in the past. It's always the case of uh, Vasily Komarov. Um, his name is, is actually Petrov. And um, there's a story behind why it gets changed, which I, I found really kind of fascinating as well. Awesome. So, and mine is going to be, yeah, I'm going to be going back to the mid-70s. The... Korean demilitarized zone, which I think a lot of people know about. It's what splits North and South Korea. And there was a time where I don't want to give away too much. So let's just say the US is good at a lot of things. And one of those things is a show of force. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a time when the US and North Korea essentially nearly went to war um, in mid 70s over a tree. <laughs> I think uh, people have gone to walk the left. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh, it's normally what's underneath the ground, right? Yeah. So I don't want to give too, too much away before I go into it. So I mean, before my section. So we'll. I'll leave it there. Oh yeah. And today I'm drinking a beer from the from Siren Craft Brew called Broken Dream, and it's a six point five percent breakfast stout. <laughs> nice. I'm drinking this thing um, from Hitachino Nest Beer. This is like from, left over from um, like one of the sets that, that people give you right for, for Christmas. Um, <laughs> it's, it's called White Ale. I have absolutely no idea like what it is. It's 5.5, so um, it sounds like it's going to be fun. Yeah. And I've got a Carlsberg on reserve just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not working tomorrow, so maybe. Well, no. <laughs> 
So, Mark, I normally give my guests a choice. Do you want to go first or should I? Um, I think maybe maybe um, <laughs> I'll take the guest like, prerogative of going first. Okay, um, sure. I kind of, kind of feel pumped up for it now. Um, Excellent. So, so let's do that. That's cool with you. Yeah, that works for me. So, in that case, we'll cut to music and then come right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back. So, um, Mark, I believe you're going to tell us about a rotten serial killer. Do you want to take it away? Yeah, totally. So I'm going to use the chance again to, uh, I don't know, just have a look. I kind of have a little bit of fun with this and um, continue to rip off the title of the Netflix show, Making a Murderer. So I've been lecturing a lot around the UK and going off to the States under the title, Making a Soviet Murderer, kind of hoping that um, Netflix might pick up on it um, and not and that not get me into too much trouble. But also I do kind of like feel that that making a Soviet murder like as the case kind of unfolds in the way that I'm going to tell it is reasonably appropriate, even though some of it is just me doing it for attention seeking. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the killer case is is reasonably well known in Russia. So it's, it's not hard to get hold of um, stuff in Russian on it. Although I haven't got any um, any stuff from, from the court yet, but you know, newspaper reports and so on. But this kind of actually started out by me finding stuff uh, in New York Times archives. So I guess that's as good a place as any to start. So there's an article in the New York Times, which very kind of like vividly talks about a pair of death sentences which are passed upon Vasily Komarov and his wife Sophia. So just to, I mean, to kind of you know, draw you a picture of them, they're pretty old. <laughs> they're wearing clothes in the, in the only image that I can find anywhere of them that could only be described as very, very Russian. So <laughs> this, this kind of, kind of sweet picturesque uh, Russian couple. I think Sophia's a little younger, but Komarov is in his, is, is in his early 50s. Um, mm-hmm. Right, so they, they, they get sentenced to, to the death penalty for killing a combined total of 33 people. And this all uh, takes place between um, February 1921 and May 1923. Um, wow, that's a really short time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, like, a, a kind of really pivotal time. Like, the revolution happens in 1917, and they're straight into a civil war. So the civil war is still going on, albeit a little bit away from Moscow at this point. But also there's a famine as well because the, you know, the Soviet regime are just kind of struggling to to really do anything. There's not a real, like, sense of control at all. So um, people in large urban areas like Moscow are really, really poor at the time. And um, this certainly kind of feeds into some of Komarov's actions, I think, later on, um, at least. The, the reasons that he gives um, for the crimes anyway. So, yes, it's a really short space of time, February 1921 to May 1923. Um, right, so Komarov has the same MO. Right, the victims are all male. They all come from a, a semi-rural background. Basically, it seems like most of them are, are peasants who gravitated um, to, to the city for work. 
Um, they all have this uh, kind of interest in horse trading, as I'm going to talk about later. That's where uh, Komarov picks picks all of his victims up from. Um, but also in terms of the act of murdering them itself, um, they're all they're all killed the same way. They're all cut up the same way, and they're all bound and tied in the same way in these in these small sacks, um, almost like mm. the kind of like you know the, the kind of cheap sports holders that you can pick up from. Um, I want to say like uh, DW Sports or or wherever, and then their, body, their bodies are strewn, strewn around like quite a quite a small area, which is not that far from where Komarov lives. So this article talks about the the proceedings of the court itself, talking about how many people are there watching it. So people are packed into this courtroom, then they're all ushered outside. They wait under armed guard until um, until two in the morning when this verdict gets read out. So the journalist talks about how there there hadn't been such an interest in Moscow for a non-political event up until this point and talks about how the trial was yeah. upgraded from the regular court tra- chamber to this um, kind of ad hoc um, court set up in the, in the Polytechnic Museum um, because of the interest in it. So like this, this, this New York Times article just dis- describes the kind of excitement and the, the kind of the fact that this is a huge kind of sensation in Moscow at the time, which is which is quite something considering like the the events there and the, you know in the past few years with the government being overthrown in in St Petersburg and and the civil war breaking out and so on. So yeah, so this newspaper article really captured that. So that that got my kind of attention fairly quickly. Also, the names that they give to Vasily as well. So I haven't probably use these names as much as I would like to because I've mainly done this to loads of stuffy academics who yeah. probably wouldn't appreciate it. But like he's known as the Wolf of Moscow, the human wolf. And this is kind of popularised into the Wolf of uh, Shabalovka Street. So like originally before deciding to rip off Netflix, I wanted to do something with Wolf of Wall Street, Wolf of Shabalovka Street, you know. Um, so they use this, this really kind of like bestial yeah, kind of wolf description for him. And um, they talk about his facial features, his sadism. And also they kind of continue to go back to the fact that he'd, he'd already taken, tried to take his own life um, on a number of occasions as well. So that's the, that's the kind of way into the, the case for me is through the end of it and, you know, and what, what happens during the trial. So then I started kind of working backwards, trying to kind of almost set up my office at home to be like true detective or something where I had a map of Moscow set up and um, little pins, you know. I think I just had this idea that I could try and play out some of my like kind of childhood desires to be a detective. <laughs> so there's this prolonged investigation, which which actually when you start to have a look at it, yeah, all right, we're looking at, looking at it like in hindsight, but stuff falls together pretty easily. I mean, this case is not one that, I mean, this is the only reason why that um, uh, ripping off the Netflix show might not work because this is cut and dry in this case. All these murders of these guys, he, he kind of confesses to them anyway. And as the, the detectives see everything fall into place, like fairly logically, I suppose, he's a carriage driver in, in the city. And what they start to realise is a large number of victims are, are found around the vicinity of a, a horse market, which which runs twice a week. Um, so, mm. given that the body's always found in the days immediately after trading, and that the sacks that I described earlier contained uh, traces of hay or oats, they begin to realise that it must be someone from the horse market. And then they interview a few a few people there, and um, they begin to hear hear Komarov's name coming up. Um, more and more and he's pointed out as being someone who's there regularly but he never seems to do any real kind of business there 
so, so again, all right, you know, they've probably got other stuff going on in Moscow at the same time, but I mean, it, it becomes fairly obvious who, who this dude is. So they enter his property. I mean, they, <laughs> like during this time with the, you know, the Soviet state kind of like trying to fit everything together, um, they do it under um, the pretext of, of looking for a legal um, brew house, like a moonshine factory, uh, which, which, is, which is, of course, like, you know, something that, it probably shouldn't have done, but ultimately, you know, this this thing happens anyway. Um, yeah. So they get into his outside stable and they find a, a corpse that's buried under a stack of hay there. You know, this this thing is then is, is then done. Everything has come together. Uh, Komarov actually legs it. Like he actually runs away um, for an open window, and they catch up with him a few days later. And at that point, he confesses to a total of thirty-three murders. Um, wow. Twenty-two had been found already and five more were found with the aid of his testimony. There is a slight discrepancy there because there's another five that are unaccounted for, um, and the investigations team just decided that they'd been sunk to the bottom of the main river that you know that kind of flows through that part of the city, and yeah. Komarov is happy to kind of admit to those as well. So there are a few holes there, but um, nevertheless, like, you know, he's, he's tried and he's, he's given the death penalty for 33 murders. That's a lot. Three years, was it? Sure. Three years? Well, not even that. So it's February 1921 to May 1923. So it's, okay. It's a lot in a, in, a, in a short space of time. But then, you know, there's the, there's the uh, I, I don't know, the, I'm not, a, like, I, I know a reasonable amount about serial killers. I mainly just watch documentaries on them, and I'm kind of fascinated by them. But yeah. um, there is a huge amount of op- like opportunism to this, um, this particular case. And I think as you start doing it, and also... The reason that, that he gives for it when he's interviewed by a number of different people is that, that he just he just needs the money. Like this is out of any of the cases of um, Russian serial killers that I've looked at. Like this is the most kind of straightforward. I think this is the mo- this is the most practical. I guess it's no, it's, yeah. It's also like right after World War One as well. So uh, I guess the dealing with a lot of shit right now <laughs> yeah yeah um, um and also there's there's a lot of stuff that like that um going on around this area of the city i mean this this part of the city is known for having this huge radio tower which is not in use anymore kind of fairly mm-hmm. obviously but during this time this radio tower is being built so i'd imagine there's that having this having that there is a big distraction alongside um you know the kind of poverty attached to you know, being still involved in the civil war and the famine as well that is obviously a part of that as well so there is a lot going on and he has the opportunity to do this and i think once you know like once he doesn't get arrested at an early stage he just continues to do it because his main motivation and i haven't found anything that would that would suggest otherwise it's just for the money there there have been people that i've found when i've been looking at looking at um kind of russian newspapers or uh, Russian sources attached to this case have suggested that like he doesn't really get that much money. So I like I had a go at working it out. Like he gets around fifty p from each victim, and that that adds up to like just under twenty quid overall. So I then t- worked out how much it was today, and it's just under three hundred pounds. I mean, it doesn't doesn't sound like a lot, but like considering that he is completely destitute in Moscow during the Civil War and there's a famine going on. I mean, I think it probably would be a reasonable amount about that time. Yeah, because uh, it'll buy food, at least. Yeah, yeah. There are a few accounts which suggest a, a variety of, of, of kind of different reasons or try to um, try to portray the case in, in a slightly different way because they seem to fit into, like, more into the kind of ideology of the new Soviet regime, which is how I've kind of come up with a 
you know, making a, a Soviet murderer part of this. And the reason the reason that I've been able to do that is because I've managed to find a, well, it wasn't particularly difficult, it was a copy in London, an edited volume by a criminological bureau from the 1920s, and there's, like, part of that volume is dedicated to this case. So along with the, the New York Times stuff, I kind of used the views of the criminologist to just to kind of see, like, you know, the comparison between... So the um, Criminological Bureau, they focus heavily on a number of things from Komarov's biography, his upbringing. So the criminologist account of, of uh, the Komarov case um, talks about Komarov's relationship with alcohol and suggests that, that this, this comes from his from his parents, or m- most prominently his, his dad. So his, his dad um, actually collapses and drowns in a ditch due to, to being hammered, essentially. Um, mm. And also... Komarov had grown up in a rural household where there'd been a lot of domestic violence. Again, I don't really have any way of of, of, find, of of providing any kind of real evidence for that, but it certainly wouldn't be out of place, you know, in you know during this time in, in the Russian Empire. So yeah. they focus on Komarov's father and then also the drinking habits of his mum as well. They kind of touch on his, his mum and her relationship with booze a little bit, and his five or six brothers. Um, one of his brothers ends up getting gets banged up and he gets sent to this prison essentially on an island very, very far away from, from anything um, because he drunkenly assaults a government official. The criminologists kind of really focus on his relationship with alcohol, probably that it's not massively different from a lot of people at that time, but this is a particular thing that the Criminological Bureau are focusing on um, during this period. They're, they're really looking at production of illegal moonshine. And I mean, essentially, they're, they're kind of worrying about not necessarily people um, drinking alcohol, but the type of alcohol they're drinking. So by bringing in Comrade's relationship with alcohol, that feeds into the one, one of the wider themes in this volume. Yeah. Um, so that's a part of the case which I couldn't find elsewhere and in the newspaper reports, but I think is, is, is kind of teased out a bit more because it fits into the kind of the kind of the new Soviet like kind of idea of what people should do and what they shouldn't do. So they also talk about a bit more of Komarov's biography. So to just to cover everything, basically he's he's brought up in Belarus, right? He's in he's in rural Belarus, that's where he is with his with his family and this stuff happens with his dad and his brother. Actually, he, Vasily, ends up going away to work as a servant um, around um, 14 years of age. So during this time, um, the criminologist described him kind of entering the school of life, <laughs> like how some of my friends described the university of life. Like they didn't go to uni, but they've been to the university of life, right? So Komarov, like during this time, he um, discusses later that he began drinking all kinds of different things, um, shoe polish, um, <laughs> mechanical fluid. Um, and he also, he loses his virginity at what we would now consider to be uh, quite a young age as well. So he leaves home, he goes to work as a servant. Yeah, he, he kind of moves around a little bit. He tends to run away quite a lot. And because of this, he really finds it difficult to find uh, consistent work. He does somewhat remarkably remain married to his first wife, whose name isn't mentioned in any account that I can find of this, um, hmm. for, for 28 years. Right, So he, he has a 28-year marriage despite the frequent alcohol-related scandals. Right, They use this word um, specifically, scandals that, that happen in the family home. So 
again, like it kind of fascinated me to try and find more about what what they mean by scandals. He um, also a big part of um, what the criminologists do with this case is they talk about his military experience. So um, obviously the Soviets come along and they want to um, immediately try to eradicate all remnants of what existed before the revolution. And um, yeah, like one of the biggest the biggest things is is you know, Russia going into the First World War. So any military history is brought out in the account by the criminologists. So there's a war between Russia and Japan in 1905. Komarov doesn't it's like it doesn't seem that he goes to fight in that war. He does travel quite close to the region and uh, he's involved in business ventures yeah and again um there are no there are no more details i mean i'm yeah i'm assuming it's something pretty shady but yeah this this is kind of discussed you know he's there for the for the russo-japanese war even though he's not fighting it's he's still surrounded by warfare he has yeah. this little period where um he, he obviously makes quite a lot of money doing whatever he's been doing and um him and his first wife travel around a little bit <laughs> until they kind of squander it all and he gets imprisoned so 40 years old he's imprisoned for stealing apples from a warehouse that he works for so i don't i don't know again like the scale of this i don't know if it's one apple or like 400 apples kind of having quite severe punishments isn't it yeah i mean i mean russia is is known for harsh punishments so he goes into prison for a little while. During this time, his, his first wife passes away. She has cholera. So he comes out. But he, he gets married um, to Sophia, who way, way back at the start, I mentioned she gets sentenced to the, to the death penalty with him. She's a widow with two children. She's in Poland. So Vasily and Sophia, they, they are forced to travel around a little bit because of the First World War. But then Komarov joins the Red Army. Like He joins the Red Army in 1917. I'm assuming that it's after the first revolution in in 1917, which is which is February. But he joins the Red Army and he learns to read and write, and he rises to the rank of a platoon commander. So yeah. this guy who's who's had this already this, this quite an eventful life. Yeah, you know, he got banged up for a little while. Um, he didn't have a very nice upbringing, um, and he's now become a platoon commander. It's recalled in a number of different accounts that I've looked at. So I'm going to continue to try and um, chase that up. But yeah, this this, this period um, there. This is where um, there there are there are a number of events which the criminologists suggest really change Vasily. So he reportedly authorizes his own battalion to shoot a spy. So they find a spy among their ranks, and he authorizes their execution. He takes part in another vote to to execute a white army soldier. So the civil war is the red army against the white army. So he takes part in, in, in this vote to execute a, an enemy soldier, essentially. And also, he himself is captured, but has the foresight to change his own surname. So this is where, you know, right, right back at the beginning, you know, he's, he's known as Komarov in every single account. But actually, he, you know, he, he was originally Petrov. So he changes his own surname to avoid execution. Pretty kind of smart piece of um, survival at that point. So this experience of warfare is obviously brought up by the criminologists, suggesting that there is uh, something quite close to you know, what we would understand as, uh, as, as PTSD. So again, like something that, that is that is really difficult to quantify. Like I don't doubt that so much happens to him in his life, but it's hard to pinpoint like one thing and say, yeah. oh, it's, you know, it's relationship. I think it's very food. rarely just one thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's an escalation. Yeah, well, you can kind of see these things kind of fitting together, right? Yeah. That 
he has a kind of traumatic childhood. He, you know, he drinks a lot. He really struggles to, um, apart from his marriage, which stays together for 28 years, which is, which is pretty good going. Mm. Um, he, like, he's a, he's a drifter, essentially. But this experience of warfare is really brought out in the criminological account because it's, it's, um, an experience that only happens because of the evils of the previous regime. So mm. that that kind of fits into the Soviet worldview as well. So Komarov at, at this point, he's, you know, been a you know, he's been in prison for, for for stealing apples. He's been a platoon commander. He then gets discharged in 1920. So we're kind of getting close to when these these murders start. So he arrives in Moscow for the first time, and he becomes working as a cab driver for a refugee organisation. So um, a cab driver like in Moscow during this time is not <laughs> the same as an Uber driver now, right? He basically pulls people's stuff um, around the city using a sled, you know, like I was saying, on a, on, a, on a rope. But he uses the opportunity to work for this refugee organisation to begin to steal stuff and sell it on to make a little bit of money. Around February, he commits his first murder. So and this all starts to kind of build up and build up. Um, from the first victim, or the first couple of victims, I think, actually, um, he's able to buy a horse, and he works then as a, an independent cab driver. So rather than working for his refugee organisation and pulling stuff around, um, he can he can go around on a horse. Um, so it's suggested quite heavily that this is a vocation that is specially selected so he can dispose of the bodies, right? I mean, I think it's probably it's probably a li- little bit less calculated than that. I think that this that um, certainly it probably helps, but he's just been working as a cab driver anyway. So the logical step is to just become a a different type of cab driver, but be able to you know have a horse and maybe make a bit more money and move around the city a bit more. So undoubtedly, he does use this new kind of vocation to do what he does later with the bodies but I don't, I, I, I don't quite see it in the same way as the criminologist who suggests that he you know he almost like flicks through a list of possible jobs and he comes up with one that um, he would be able to dump these bodies with um, I think it's a bit more it's a bit more kind of organic a bit more I don't know like that, that process seems to just fall into place a bit more yeah it's just a logical step right you know I've been yeah. working as a cab driver but pulling stuff around and, and breaking my body doing it I'm going to buy a horse and do what I've been doing but I'm going to not be destroying my body anymore I'm going to get the horse to do everything for me yeah because he's pretty old at um, this point as well yeah yeah no yeah um no, he is so he's getting towards the, the half century you know so he also at this time has this really like um interesting little incident where he he actually gets um so he's already committed I think two murders and he gets apprehended and fined. He doesn't quite get arrested and banged up, but there is some kind of drunken episode again. I think they even refer to it as a, as a scandal, which doesn't give me much to, to go on at all. But so he kind of comes face to face with the authorities, right? But they're completely unaware of his more murderous activities. You know, so he's he's killed two people at this point, but he's there and he's apprehended and he's fined. So he's in some kind of like police custody or you know, a kind of like that part of it is very similar to a lot of crime dramas, you know, where you see the detective and, and, and the murderer and they kind of cross paths a little bit. Um, yeah. So I find this, I find that that, that episode, I, I, there's no, absolutely no way of like tracing that again whatsoever. But um, so the rest of the account really does go through in detail how the murders are, are, are carried out. Normally I have to, um, like a disclaimer was put on something I wrote online for this bit, but I'm assuming that um, for the podcast audience I can just go for it, right? 
people get a bit squeamish. Oh, there's your disclaimer. You got yeah, no, I wrote something for the web- website, and uh, I it been it was up for like two months, and I didn't read it. So I don't really like reading my own stuff once it's you know gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my friends sent me an email and said, "Oh, your article was really cool, but um, they put a disclaimer in the middle of it." <laughs> oh, so, you've, um, you've, you've won this now. <laughs> so this mo that he has, right, um, which I kind of referred to briefly earlier. So this is elaborated on in wider accounts, right? It doesn't make it into the New York Times police reports. But um, basically, he looks to bring these um, peasants who've who've gone gone to Moscow, you know, for work, back to his apartment on the pretext of selling them a a horse or uh, some other, like, kind of horse-related product. I don't really know that much about horses to tell you what that could have been. But um, he gets them back to his apartment. And then he offers them a drink, right? He sits them on a chair in the middle of the room. Um, he says, do you, want, do you want some wine or do you want some vodka? And then he goes and he gets some kind of document, like almost like a kind of receipt, or like a, a bill of sale or, or, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And he gives them that to read while they're sat on a chair in the middle of the room. So this part always makes me think of lethal weapon. They walk into a room and it's covered in um, in, in clear plastic, right? Because they're going to bag up the bodies. Um, mm-hmm. So someone... Someone walks you know, into his apartment completely unaware and there's a chair in the middle of the room. Um, they get sat down on it. He gives them this um, document, this receipt, and then as they're reading it, he goes and gets a hammer off the side and he, he walks up behind them. He kind of reaches his arm round and he just, he just he hits them as hard as he can. So this knocks the victims unconscious, fairly obviously. He does then apparently try and tidy up a little bit, let the blood trip out into a, into a bowl that he has, and then he and then he strangles them to kind of finish them off. So, again, like, if you read a lot about serial killers, it's probably not that gruesome. But um, at this point, he then tells his wife and his children to leave the house or get out of the apartment. And the first time I read that, I thought I'd read it the wrong way around. I thought that he would tell, have told them that earlier. Yeah, but I, re- I reread it, um, and actually, <laughs> I don't think I am wrong. And yeah, definitely, um, the the account seems to suggest that they're there in the apartment at the same time. Whether or not that's a that's something to put whoever it is who goes back at ease a little bit because there are children there and because his wife's there. But um, basically, once he kills his victims, um, he ki- he kicks his wife and kids out, and he stashes the body away in a wardrobe is where he starts to then come up with his, um, this plan about where, where to take the corpses. And my, most of them are taken reasonably kind of nearby. I mean, I, I use a map on Google um, when I'm doing lectures on this. They're in a really tight vicinity around where he lives. There's a derelict uh, mansion that's close by. So six bodies are taken to this derelict mansion. There's also, uh, like I so said, he's in 22 Shabalovka Street. There is no one at this point in 24 right next to his so he takes a whole load of them there as well. And then I think he probably runs out of viable options in those two places. So he starts taking them down to it. There's a, there's a side street that's pretty close. Uh, and then he starts to take them a little bit further and just leaves them on the bank of the river, you know, kind of in these bags. He just you know, puts them down by the, by the bank of the river. And then he, he then you know, goes off on his horse again. So the fact that he has the same MO uh, is interesting. But I mean... I think, again, this guy just seems to be... A lot of this is done for very... Um, like, in his head, right? You know, obviously there is there is a lot going on there. And, you know, it's not my it's not my place to try and figure that out. But a lot of this seems to be done for, like, practical reasons. I think the MO is the same because he keeps getting, he keeps getting away with it, right? Um, yeah. And there's no... It's, it's so hard to tell 
you know, from anything I've read, whether he derived any, any kind of pleasure whatsoever from it. Doesn't seem to. He seems to find his trial proceedings quite amusing, which there might be there might be something there. But I'm uncomfortable with this idea of people going back in <laughs> back in time and trying to trying to psychoanalyze people because it's such a difficult thing to do, you know, kind of in the moment. Um, yeah. for us in 2018 anyway, that to, to, to go back to Moscow in yeah, the early early 1920s and try and figure it out, along with all the stuff that he's grown up with. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be confident enough to say for certain. I, it's definitely the PTSD stuff. It's, it's definitely just him doing it because he needs money. It's, it's so many things that come together. So I think the final point that, that I'm going to make is, is one that I kind of quite often do when, I, when I've done the lectures on it is that... Um, <laughs> I barely mentioned his wife at all, other than yeah. her getting kicked out of the apartment. But she gets the same punishment as he does, right? And there's, the, you know, the, the photo of them I referred to at the start. Um, she's she's sitting there, and you know, she's a she looks like a you know kind of old babushka, like you know, like when I go to Moscow, I see loads loads of similar looking um, sweet old ladies on the metro. But she barely like mentioned at all. I think that. The fact that they bring back the death penalty just you know just for these two, at least it appears that way, is, is a really interesting point. But also that she isn't ever discussed like in at any length whatsoever. Like that she you know that she is um, sentenced for being his accomplice. And I I think that is because the criminological bureau that I've referred to, they are trying to suggest that. Um, so the revolution was a very um, emancipating time for women, and that feeds into criminological thought during this time, and they are starting to show that women are taking part in crime, like moving into male-dominated areas, you know, increasingly often. Yeah. But this account of Sophia places her in, you know, in a, in a very kind of patriarchal traditional relationship, like she just goes along with what her husband does. So she doesn't fit into anything else in this criminological you know, volume that I found, which is talking about how women are becoming bandits more often, um, how women are murdering um, people more often. She is kind of, you know, almost like put um, completely out of view because she doesn't fit into their kind of narrative of, of the fact that women, the women are taking part in, you know, in crime and, you know, previously a kind of like more male dominated, you know, area um, in greater numbers. So she fascinates me, I think just as much as uh, as, as Vasily. Um, yeah, I'd definitely be so, more interested in finding out about her if, you, like, if anything comes up. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I really don't know what I'm going to, what I'm going to be doing with it. I think I like this idea of continuing to look at, like, I look a lot inside um, labour camps and inside prisons. I like, like, in my head, like, the next projects I'm going to do are on criminal spaces out, outside of, outside of penality areas, like, um, not like, so, there are, there are areas that are similar to what this this part of the city is like, which are kind of referred to as slums, basically. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of like horrible stuff goes on there. So I'm starting to look at, um, you know, like Shabalovka Street, where um, Vasily is, as being a, an, an area where there are opportunities to do, you know, criminalised acts. I think I'm going to, yeah, the, one of the things I'm going to start looking at is um, criminal spaces, like, during, you know, during this period, because there's so much going on. You know, we've, like, talked about the, you know, the famine and the civil war and the fact that, you know, this case draws such a large audience and they decide to just bring back the death penalty for it. So I think there's there's way more to be told for this yeah. story. There's, there's also, um, actually, and this is going to be my final point, about the, the criminologists um, revise down the total of murders as well. And there is no other reason for them to do this other than that they want to take away the more sensationalised aspects of the case. So 
their biggest thing during this time is is not bringing into view like types of celebrity criminals. Yeah. So before before the revolution, there are there are quite a few you know well known bandits. There's a very very famous thief called um, Sonka Golden Hand. She's like almost like the kind of um, that's a good name. Yeah, no, it's awesome. She's got like she's got a bunch of TV shows about her and some some awful rap songs as well. Um, but what they do after the revolution is they start looking at the wider mass of crime. You know, looking at let celebrities less and less. So I think that's why everything is played down. I think that's why there's no um, Wolf of Shablovka Street. I think that's. I actually also think that that's why they use the double-barreled name in this case because that even yeah. that takes away a little bit of you know of the, the the kind of individualism of it so um there is way way more i think to, to, to be discovered about this case but for now that's that's pretty much all i've got awesome yeah thank you that was great yeah. that was a really interesting case actually i felt a bit disjointed <laughs> it, it's fine uh, that's what editing does yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, trust, yeah. I trust you to do a good job on that i'll try my best <laughs> <laughs> it's fine uh, I, I think that's pretty good actually it's not. It's not one I've heard of before. So I'm quite. I'm pretty happy. Basically, <laughs> so ba- yeah, basically the only serial killers um, people only re- like, really only find out about. I'm, a, I'm like a big fan of these um, TV shows where they, you know, it's almost like a countdown of serial killers and these. Um, you know, you get to service stations. There's like kind of you know hundred serial killers books. Um, yeah, yeah, I like so those. I've, I've got a whole bunch of those. Um, and the only uh, the only Russian serial killers in there are, are you know kind of from the second half of the 20th century you know mainly from the 80s and 90s so this was an opportunity to they said people know about this case there's a on russian wikipedia that you know komarov has a um has a, a a pretty lengthy description on on there but nothing exists in in english so i'm trying to kind of be the person who does that i guess yeah i just did something a little bit different this was like for me a, a side project you know oh i liked it yeah so if that's everything We'll cut to music and then come back with part two. Sound good? Awesome. Cool. So see you guys in a bit. And we are back. So that was Vasily Kamarov. Now let's talk about the Korean axe murder incident, also known as the hatch incident or the poplar tree incident or the tree trimming incident, <laughs> which doesn't really bring to mind the um, idea of the US nearly going to war, does it? No. But just to start off, how many people do you think it would take to cut down a just a single poplar tree? Just normally. I'm going to guess, I don't know, like a dozen people? Well, I'll say what that like. This was a little different. <laughs> so I think the best way to start this is just kind of give a little bit of background. So this occurred like on the North South Korea border in 1976. And technically it's like two events that like that kind of joined together in one. And the first one occurred on the on August the 18th, 1976. But before that, let's talk about the general area because I think a lot of people know like know what the demilitarized zone is, but just to clear things up a little bit, um, essentially a, bo- a barrier divides the Korean peninsula about in half, and it was created as an agreement between North Korea, the UN, and China in 1953. It's about 160 miles long, 
250 kilometers for you Americans, and about two and a half miles or four kilometers wide. And it's essentially uh, a big area where they're not allowed to have proper like military installations and stuff. Then to narrow it down a bit closer to our area, we need to go to the Joint Security Area, which is the only portion of this zone where the North and South Korean forces essentially stand face to face. And it was used by the Koreas for things like diplomatic engagements, prisoner exchanges, etc. And there were military negotiations between the North, North Korean and United Nations Command. And it's also near something called the Bridge of No Return, which is a bridge that was used for prisoner exchanges towards the end of the Korean War in 1953. The name comes from basically when they were releasing prisoners of war, they wanted a bridge, and they could either choose to stay in the country where they were captured, or cross the bridge to attend their homeland. But if they crossed, they'd never be allowed to return, even if they changed their minds. And in this joint security area, and pretty close to the bridge, there was a about 30 meter tall poplar tree, and it blocked the line of sight between the United Nations Command checkpoint number three, and observation post number five. Just arbitrary numbered posts. And the command post number three was situated essentially next to the Bridge of No Return and was the northmost point of the United Nations Command. And it was only visible from the observation post during the winter months, as during the summer months, you can only see the top of it, which, needless to say, is a bit of a security no-no. And it was also only visible from one other checkpoint. So essentially, uh, on August the 18th, 1976, they sent a group of five Korean service corps uh, personnel, along with a United Nations Command security team, which was made up of Captain Arthur Boniface, the South Korean Captain Kim, who was the pl- platoon leader of the platoon in the area, and about 11 enlisted personnel, which made up both American and South Korean troops. And they went into the joint security area to trim the tree. The two captains didn't have any sidearms or anything, because members of the Joint Security Area were only allowed to have five armed officers and 30 armed enlisted personnel at a time. But they had, like, mattocks in the back of their truck and the workers had axes to cut the tree branches. So they go about their job, as normal. Start trimming this tree. And shortly after, about 15 North Korean soldiers appeared under the command of a senior lieutenant, Pak Chul, who had a history of confrontations with the UNC soldiers. And they kind of just watch casually for about 15 minutes. And then he goes up and says, stop trimming this tree. Under the reason that it couldn't be trimmed because, to quote, Kim Il-sung personally planted it and nourished it, and it's growing under his supervision. (laughs) And to this, Captain Boniface kind of just ordered them to continue and turned his back on Lieutenant Pak Chul. Wasn't a great idea. As um, after being ignored by Boniface, Pak essentially sent the guy back across the bridge in a return. And a few minutes later, a North Korean guard truck comes across the bridge with about 20 more North Korean guards carrying crowbars and clubs. And he again says, stop trimming this tree. Boniface, once again, he just turns his back on him, which Lieutenant Pack kind of just, according to this page, he removed his watch, carefully wrapped it in a handkerchief, placed it in his pocket and shouted, kill the bastards. So the North Korean guys attacked, including using axes that were dropped by the tree trimmers and knocked Captain Boniface to the ground, bludgeoning him to death by approximately five North Korean troops. You also had Lieutenant Barrett, who would jump over a low wall, leading to a about four and a half meter deep depression that's filled with trees and stuff across the road. And worth noting, this depression wasn't visible from the road at all, because of all the grass and trees. And the entire fight lasts about 20 to 30 seconds. 
and was actually caught on video. And the United Nations Command Force dispersed North Korean guards um, just long enough to place Captain Boniface's body in the truck and kind of get out there. But there was no sign of Lieutenant Barrett still, and the guards at the observation post couldn't see him either. It's got funny going on here. Yeah, as the UNC force, they did see North Korean guards at the Korean outpost, uh, kind of weird behaviors going on. Yeah. What's, what's going on is that one guard would take an axe and go into this depression for a few minutes, then come back up, give the axe to another guard, and that guard would repeat the process for about 90 minutes. And ar- around now, the guards at the observation post were informed that Barrett was missing. So they tell the superiors and stuff about the activity in the depression, and a search and rescue squad gets dispatched. And they find Barrett attacked by an axe by the North Koreans. They got Barrett out of there, but he died en route to the hospital. So tensions is getting pretty high, yeah? And like I said, it was caught on camera from um, a guard at observation post number five who recorded it with a 35mm camera with a telephoto lens along with a black and white camera which ran out of film during it. It was also recorded by a guard at command post number three uh, at the bridge no return with a movie camera. And you can actually still find this footage of the fight. Find that it's not very often you see like actual footage of events like this. But um, yeah, anyway, shortly after this happened, the North Korean media starts airing the reports of the fight. And they state it, and they, to quote, around 10.45 a.m. today, the American imperialist aggressors sent in 14 hoodlums with axes into a joint security area to cut the tree on their own accord. Although such a work should have been mutually consented beforehand, four persons from our side went to the spot to warn them not to continue to work without our consent. Against our persuasion, they attacked our guards en masse and committed a serious provocative act of beating our men, wielding murderous weapons and depending on the fact that they outnumbered us. Our guards could not but resort to self-defense measures under the circumstances of this reckless provocation. Yeah, it's um, very North Korean in uh, wording, right? (laughs) And within four hours of the attack, Kim Jong-il, who wasn't the leader at the time, the leader was was Kim Il-sung, whose father, addressed the Conference of Non-Aligned Nations in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Uh, and presented a paired document describing the incident as an unprovoked attack on North Korean guards led by American officers, and then proposing a resolution asking the conference to condemn the U.S. provocation and essentially called on anyone at the council to endorse both the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Korea and the dissolution of, of the United Nations Command, which was seconded by Cuba, and the members of the conference passed a resolution. Meanwhile, the CIA considered the attack to be a pre-planned operation by the North Korean government, and um, they kind of fought up a range of responses. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and you can only you can really consider what they would have spoken about before deciding. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. they were pretty reserved with their, their ideas. Yeah. And considering this, this would have been a time of um, nuclear fear as well. A few generals in that room who, were, who had their, like, kind of itchy fingers to press the button, man. <laughs> But, um, like, the readiness le- levels for American forces in South Korea would increase to DEFCON 3 early in, on August 19. For a kind of comparison, DEFCON 3 was what the state was raised to after 9-11. Essentially, DEFCON levels, you have a 5 through 1, uh, with 1 being the, the highest readiness. And I believe you have 2 above that, which are emergency and something else. 
I think it's emergency and air emergency, but that's off the top of my head, and I'm not entirely sure. Did stuff like rockets, but this was discounted. They, as the ratio of artillery between like, the North and um, the US and South Korea, it was four to one. So not so great. And on top of this, um, President Park Chung-hee didn't want any military action taken. I, of course, um, from at least uh, one first-hand interview that I read about, essentially the US forces that were stationed there wanted blood. <laughs> uh, Which is reasonable considering what has happened. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in the end, they decided on something a little different. You know? Just, just a little different. And they decided to try and cut down a tree again. But it was a little different this time. Just a little different. And they commenced Operation Paul Bunyan on August 21 at 7 o'clock in the morning, about three days after this happened. And just a side note, Paul Bunyan is named after a, um, a legendary lumberjack from American folklore, which might be one of the most yeah. American things I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, have, they, they have Paul Bunyan like, on loads of like, craft beer and stuff in the States. Very, very very you know old old school american <laughs> yeah so let's get into it shall we so they sent task force Viera over which is a convoy of 23 american and south korean vehicles named after lieutenant colonel victor s Viera, who was the commander of the united states army support group and they drove into the jsa without any warnings to the north koreans at the time only had one observation post manned at the at the time because it was pretty early in the morning you know and, and in the vehicles, they had two eight-man teams of military engineers from the 2nd Engineer Battalion, who were equipped with chainsaws to cut down the tree. These teams were accompanied by two 30-man security platoons from the Joint Security Force, who were armed with pistols and axe handles, with the first platoon securing the north entrance to the JSA via the Bridge of No Return, with the, and the second platoon securing the southern edge of the area. So, quite a lot of people were already here. <laughs> And at the same time, there's a team from B Company, commanded by a Captain Walter Seafried, who had activated the detonation systems for charges on the Freedom Bridge with a 165mm main gun of a uh, M728 combat engineer vehicle aimed around mid- the middle of it. So if the order was given to destroy it, the bridge would definitely fall. And uh, B Company, who was supporting the E Company, who were at the- on the bridge, built some... M4 T6 rafts on the Imjin River in case there was a situation requiring emergency evacuation. In addition, <laughs> it keeps going. <laughs> um, they sent a 64-man task force of the South Korean wow. Special Forces who were armed with clubs and trained in Taekwondo, supposedly without firearms, but <laughs> <laughs> but once, once they parked their trucks near the bridge of no return, they went to the bottom of the, tr- of the trucks and started throwing out the sandbags that lined them. And hidden behind the sandbags were a bunch of M16 rifles and M79 grenade launchers hidden below. Yeah. Several of the commandos also had M18 claymore mines strapped to their chests with the firing mechanism in their hands and started shouting at North Koreans to cross the bridge. <laughs> in addition, <laughs> a US infantry company with 20 utility helicopters and seven Cobra attack helicopters circled behind them. And behind these helicopters, (laughs) all the way from Guam, they sent B-52 Stratofortresses escorted by US F-4 Phantom II jets from the Kunsan Air Base. 
and South Korean F-5 and F-86 fighters were visible flying across the sky at high altitude. They also sent out bombers of the 366th Tactical Fighter Wing out from the Mountain Home Air Force Base, along with F-4 Phantoms from the the 18th Inner Air Base and Clark Air Base deployed. They also moved the um, aircraft carrier USS Midway Task Force to a station just offshore. And near the edges of DMZ, they sent a bunch of heavily armed U.S. and South Korean infantry and artillery, including the 2nd Battalion, uh, 71st Air Defense Regiment, armed with improved Hawk missiles. They they also had armor waiting to back them up as well. Bases near the DMZ were, were ready for demolition in case of a military response. In addition, 12,000 additional troops were ordered to Korea, including 1,800 Marines from Okinawa. And during the operation, nuclear-capable strategic bombers circled over the JSA. And yeah, it was a lot of dudes. <laughs> Just Task Force Vieira, which was the group that actually went into JSA to cut down the trees, um, just Task Force Vieira was 813 men. Pretty much all of, the, all of them were from the United States Army Support Group, <laughs> including the Joint Security Force, a South Korean reconnaissance company, and a South Korean Special Forces company, which had infiltrated the river area by the bridge the night before. They also had members of a reinforced composite rifle company from the 9th Infantry Regiment. Uh, <laughs> And in addition to this, they had every uh, United Nations command force in the rest of South Korea on battle alert. <laughs> Remember, they're just they they they're just cutting down a tree. <laughs> this is not over the top at all. Like this is like this is entirely a show of force. Like, ma- like imagine if you're like towards the back end of that like onslaught, like you're those twelve thousand troops, and they you know it's like well you know why why are we being sent there? Oh, like, there's this tree, right? <laughs> um, well, what the time it's like? What the time it's like? Two soldiers are just being like stripped, just killed in broad daylight in front of and recorded, and have been told that they were the aggressors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a lot of the US there were pretty reasonably pissed, <laughs> like. But yeah, anyway, let's go to the actual operation that have just gone through all the forces that engaged here. So the engineers in the convoy um, were led by First Lieutenant Patrick Honor, who had conducted a recon of the tree mm-hmm. uh, about two days before. They left their vehicles once the convoy arrived and started immediately cutting down the tree while standing on the roof of their truck. While another truck was positioned to block the bridge on their return. The rest of the task force went to their assigned areas around the tree and started guarding the engineers. North Korea, like, they responded with about 150 to 200 troops with machine guns and assault rifles arriving in buses, just kind of watching them at first. And as soon as they arrived, Lieutenant Colonel Vieira sent out a radio communication where the helicopters and Air Force jets started becoming visible over the horizon. (laughs) (laughs) Which, can you imagine what that must look like if you're just there with a small group of people? It's like something off the A-team. And at the Kota Air Base in Japan, uh, the flight the flight line runway was nose to tail with a dozen C one thirties ready to pry back up. Uh-huh. Like the North Koreans, like to their credit, they got out of the bus and started setting up their two man machine gun positions. What just kind of watched in silence as the tree was fe- was felled. It took forty two minutes, which was super stressful while being watched by both of these forces. Right? <laughs> like imagine being the people that are just cutting down the tree, <laughs> <laughs> and. 
five minutes into the operation, the United Nations Command notified North Koreans that a UN work party had entered the JSA in order to peacefully finish the work left unfinished. <laughs> the South Korean troops also vandalized two North Korean guard posts and um, removed two road barriers installed by North Koreans. And at the end, they, they left a about six meter or 20 foot tall uh, tree stump standing deliberately. <laughs> and, and then they kind of just left <laughs> along with all their <laughs> troops. Like, it's a ridiculous amount of force that they used. <laughs> it's insane. And remember, this was during peacetime as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know the US like during this time understood really what peacetime was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that uh, one of the people, in, one of the uh, troops involved in the um, operation was Moon Jae-in, who was elected the president of South Korea in 2017. And oh, really? Is, yeah, and it's president today. No way. Yeah, let's go. Let's just uh, knock out the aftermath anyway, real quick. So yeah, the operation went like went down, quote peacefully. <laughs> um, sure. but, but obviously, there was a lot of concern that like, there were a lot of t- increased tensions along across the zone, and people were worried it might cause a war. But uh, this never actually came to fruition. Though some shots were fired at the U.S. helicopter carrying Major General Morris Brody, uh, but no, no one was injured though. And the United Nations Command d- demanded that the North Koreans punish those involved and make ag- adequate reparations for- to the families of those killed and injured like, later on that day. And they they received a message from Kil Sung like shortly after, expressing regret at the incident. And the message was sent a senior member of the North Korean forces, Major General Han Joo-kong, to the um, senior United Nations forces, the United Nations Command, um, Rear Admiral Mark Fridden, reading to quote, this is all like this is also another very very um, North Korean propagandist uh, message, as you real, as you notice. So, it was a good thing that no big incident occurred at Panmunjom for a long period. However, it is regretful that an incident occurred in the Joint Security Area Panmunjom at this time. Cool. An effort must be made so that such incidents may not recur in the future. For this purpose, both sides should make efforts. We urge your side to prevent the provocation. Our side will never provoke first, but take self-defense measures only when provocation occurs. This is our consistent stand. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's a, a little, um, honestly, I'd, I'd call the message itself almost provocative. <laughs> uh, it's not what they asked for, but the US administration essentially decided that they'll accept it because it was the first time since the Korean War armistice that the North had accepted responsibility for any violence along the DMZ. And in the end, essentially, it caused the North Koreans to lose face. And uh, like one of the US soldiers that uh, did it, called Bill Ferguson, um, said that you have to be strong if there's any sign of weakness, the North Koreans won't respect you. And this is actually the guy that said he wanted blood as well. Because um, uh-huh. it, uh, it's like the military... But the military operation was not what the troops at a joint security area wanted, he told me. He wanted blood, was the exact quote <laughs> from the article. <laughs> and yeah, so the JSA's advanced camp, later renamed Camp Boniface in order the slain company commander, changed from Camp mm. Kitty Hawk, <laughs> which is a great name, and um, and the Barrett Readiness Facility, which is located inside the JSA, uh, housing the battalion's North Mission to Platoon, was named for Lieutenant Barrett. 
the site of the tree, um, the, tr- the stump was cut down in 1987 and became the location of a stone monument with a brass plate inscribed by the, in the memory of both men. Commemorative ceremonies are done at the monument an- on anniversaries. The nearby uh, checkpoint uh, near the Bridge of No Return was no longer used after the mid-1980s uh, after they um, built concrete for bollards in the, in the road to make uh, impossible vehicles to pass. And yeah, it also prompted like separation of personnel from both sides uh, to avoid further incidents. And uh, that's pretty much everything I've got. Uh, apparently, there's an axe and axe handle which were used in the incident uh, in the on display in the North Korea Peace Museum. And part of the wood that was collected from the poplar tree was used by General William J. Libsey as a swagger stick during between 1984 and 1987 until he retired. We passed on to the to General Lewis C. Military. Uh, yeah, I think that's everything I've got. That is a, that's a kind of terrifying <laughs> like, um, event, you know. I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep tonight thinking about like that much military force. It's just a, it's just a show of force, right? Um, you know, um, send everything we've got and they would do whatever they can to avoid coming into like conflict mm. with us. Um, but just, just, just like to have that on hand and just be like, right, we're going to send it over there. No, no, they put all this yeah. together in three days. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know they're based in in you know, in that region anyway. But still, like you know, it's a, it's a ridiculous amount of stuff um, yeah. coming together. And then, um, yeah, for the like for the um, for the Koreans who are there as well, like seeing this all happening, <laughs> it's like, what we got? We got to maybe fight against that. <laughs> And like so early, um, like when they like when they arrived, there was one ma- there was like one man post. <laughs> yeah, and also, I mean, with everything else, why did they bother sending in people who are? I mean, I like taekwondo, and I like yeah martial arts anyway. But I mean, they no, they're not really needed. <laughs> yeah, like um, pro- like proper South Korean special forces. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. No, that was that was awesome. Uh, yeah, it's like. I can't remember if I said it in the episode or if I said it to someone else before the episode, but um, if there's one thing the US is good at, it's a show of force. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and, South, and the South Korean as well, because it was a joint It was a joint operation. I don't want to take that away yeah. from you. <laughs> uh, but they do, um, yeah, I mean, just like everything about that. I mean, the bridge of size, any, um, the no return, right, anyway, um, reminded me of the bridge of size. Um, you know, like in Venice, there's this there's this really famous bridge where prisoners are taken, and they've re- they've replicated that. There's one in Cambridge actually as well, a much smaller version. Um, okay. yeah, bridge of No Return just sounds like it's from Lord of the Rings, right? It really does. It really, really does. Um, um, so I love that, like the start of you know when you were talking about it, like the symbolism there. You know, this thing like the yeah this tree and this bridge. I kind of get I kind of get why they would be why they would be so upset about it. Also, the response from the US is it's just like a, a an action film, right? Mm, like, um, from reading about, I didn't actually see if um, it was confirmed that Kim Il Sung had anything to do with a tree, like growing. <laughs> nah, um, like there wasn't any confirmation of it. I saw, but nah, um, no, yeah. But I just like that. I just like that it is about a tree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was um, a 
yeah, probably one of the most important trees that we've uh, had in the last few years. Yeah, just the contrast with that, like with that thing, like having grown out of the ground for so long, and then all this new like military technology. You yeah, know, like well, kind it's of, maybe about forty years ago now, nearly. Yeah. So in the mid seventies, so <laughs> it wasn't even that long ago, really. No, no, that was very, you know it's still the same. Like U.S. like foreign policy is still influenced by the same kind of mm. kind of um, attitudes and same opinions. Yeah. yeah. It's worth um, on a side I'm note. Sure. Um, I was I was reading about the Korean War a little bit as well, um, and it's like it has been called one of the forgotten wars. Yeah, I think I think just because of um, it just gets so um, eclipsed by by Vietnam. Yeah, I know. It's um, um no, but, like, yeah, but it's um. I was reading about it. it's about three million people died during it, <laughs> which is yeah, like, yeah. Uh, a lot. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of other shady stuff that US yeah. got to around that time, and you know, yeah, I know, uh, kind of Latin uh, America. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but it's um, like Vietnam gets the attention because it has cool films about it, right? I think um, there were yeah, there was actually like. It's, I think Vietnam was um, more famous just because of how it had a lot of um, striking imagery going on during yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, there was a lot and of uh, propaganda. Yeah. There was a lot of um, the booby traps were were very striking. Um, yeah, I highly recommend looking up videos of uh, the booby traps because there's like demonstrations of like in museums and stuff on YouTube. Uh huh. Ridiculous. But anyway, we should. Um, before we start, before we keep going on, we should uh, cut to music and come up with an outro. I think sound good. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Be right back, guys. And we are back. So, um, any last comments before we um, close up? No, other than I'm just going to try and try and check out those videos now. Yeah, um, yeah I totally want to find out more, like, more about career as well. Actually, um, you're right. Like, I, I kind of overlooked it as well because I like stuff about Vietnam a little more, and because of the kind of what it represents. There's more, yeah, like um, kind of raw emotion attached to Vietnam. Mm. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm going to spend the next few days, I think, just checking out as much stuff about um, Korean War as I can. Yeah, there's a bunch of different wars like in the last in the last century that are, that are just uh, completely forgotten about because they're kind of overshadowed by the bigger ones, like especially like the world wars, uh, Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, like what happens in Yugoslavia gets gets overlooked quite a lot, mm-hmm. um, and also um, like probably Rwanda as well. Like, kind of, you know, they both happen around about the same time. But like um, Africa in general is quite often just overlooked. Um, yeah, like uh, the I mean, East African Front during World War One is is gen- is nicknamed the Forgotten Front in a lot of things, and the, yeah, yeah, the f- the further they happen away, you know, that people are still so attached to you know to, to the Blitz and or, you know and, and like right, and, you know kind of rightly so as well, and like the images from the First World War. Um, mm-hmm. So people at least you know here in the UK they 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 don't tend to know that much. Unless yeah. Through, like, unless America is involved, because you know, um, there are there are cousins, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like um, in November, I'm planning on getting out a few World War One episodes. As November the 11th is the hundredth anniversary of Armistice Day. Oh, oh cool. Yeah. No, I hadn't realised because I mean the, the that kind of period of like you know since you know, centennial celebrations 
or remembrance. Yeah. Uh, whatever. It's, it's, yeah, it's obviously gone on for such a long time. Like there was like as, you know when people were remembering you know 1914, um, mm-hmm. and then the big and then the big battles that happened like the following year as well. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like dis- disappeared a little bit and almost kind of forgotten. Right, we're coming up to the to the you know hundred year anniversary. Yeah. So now, yeah, I mean, I'm sure those those episodes will be awesome. Well, I've got a few um, particular topics that I want that I'm probably going to bring up. So, uh, but I'm going to leave. I'm not going to put bring, bring too much out apart from that. Um, but yeah, anyway. So, did you want to plug anything or probably a few things? I guess. Like, so if anyone wants to read um, more on Vasily um, Komarov, um, I've got a blog post up on the Pushkin House blog. So I guess we just go to Pushkin's House website. You'll be able to get to it, or just Google Pushkin House blog. If you send me, if you um, tweet me the link, I'll retweet it on the page. Yeah, that 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 would that would be awesome. So yeah, there's a bit more stuff on there, and it's, it's possibly a little more eloquent um, than, than me talking about it. Um, I'm also I've got a book coming out next year, so buy my book next year. It's called Criminal Subculture in the Gulag, and it's coming out with IB Taurus probably probably in the summer. I guess like um, we're looking at like maybe May or June at the moment. But in the meantime, um, if anyone wants to read about like Russian criminality, then check out Mark Bullen's book on tattoos. You know, Mark was on the uh, was on the podcast a while back. And there's another guy called Mark Galliotti, and he writes about the um, the Bori, so the the Russian mafia that that, that the other Mark also talked about. That's a lot of marks. <laughs> the only people who do um, anything about crime in Russia are called Mark. Um, yeah, yeah it, it turns out so yeah check out their books until until mine ends up coming out oh and come and watch me wrestle like if anyone is is anywhere near norwich and wants to come and watch wrestling then check out waw we did a big show at the weekend we made national news because nice. uh, norwich city well i turned up at the end of it and uh won the main match so yeah they're, they're the things i've got to plug excellent cool so and just to follow up on that just uh Mark, Mark Bullen, if you listen to this, thanks for putting us in touch. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And on that, um, just a few plugs for myself. I'm going to plug the Murderly Network, which is murder.ly. If you go to that site, you can find a bunch of other really cool true crime podcasts. Uh, I'm going to give another shout-out to Moxie from uh, last week's episode uh, from Your Brain and Facts podcast, because I was a little late on giving that out, and I told her I'd plug it again this week, just as a <laughs> thank you. <laughs> But yeah, I, that uh, that was a really fun episode as well. Um, what else? What else? What else? What else? I think that's all I can think of right now. If I've got anything, I'll just add it in the next episode because <laughs> it's getting a bit late now, isn't it? Uh, we have social media. Uh, we've got Facebook at facebook.com slash blood on the rocks. We have Twitter at and Instagram at the bloody rocks. You can email me, talk about anything you really feel like at botrpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, let me think, let me think, let me think. I have a Discord group chat. You can find it in the description because it's just a string of letters in the uh, link. So, um, And we also have Patreon if you want to support the show uh, at patreon.com slash blood on the rocks. And yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. So I think on that we can... Oh, did you want to plug your social media? Oh. Yeah, um, so just um, at Vincent Criminal. Um, and uh, you can get hold of me on a, a Gmail, which is Cult of the Urca. The Gmail is in the bio for the, 
Twitter account anyway. So it's at Vincent Criminal on Twitter. And then you can find like various ways of contacting me on there. I don't care. Like send me a DM. I read, I don't mind how people get hold of me. Mm-hmm. Cool. So on that, so thank you for joining me. And to all my listeners, thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends. And have a great week. I'll see you soon. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.